You've tuned in to TV You Grew Up With, where we interview the people who created the greatest TV shows ever made. Here's your host, Jim Harrell. Welcome to TV You Grew Up With. I'm Jim Harold. So glad to be with you once again. And today we're going to talk about one of my favorite personalities of all time and one of the greatest game shows of all time. We're going to talk about Mr. Gene Rayburn. Now, most of you listening to this will know him as the host of The Match Game, and that is how I knew him primarily. Uh, actually, was one of those kids in the 70s who watched The Match Game and probably had no idea what they were talking about, but I thought it was hilarious. Anyway, uh, Gene did much more than that. And we've got an expert on the subject. I've read his book. It's fascinating. A great case study of a great broadcaster. Adam Needuff, he is the author of The Matchless Gene Rayburn. And not only has Adam written this book, uh, but he has written many other books on the topic of game shows. He himself has spent some time in broadcasting as a disc jockey. And uh, he's been encouraged by the likes of Conan O'Brien to pursue these game show books. He's done uh, one on Bill Cullen. He's done uh, several on This Day in Game Show History. Uh, fascinating books and a fascinating subject, at least to me, and I'm sure it will be to you. Adam, welcome to the program today. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. So, Adam, uh, tell us how you became introduced to Gene Rayburn. Well, uh, I'm. There's another radio host that kind of refers to me as a young punk. I'm only 33 years old, but uh, that would mean that I'm too young to remember the match game in its original run. Uh, I discovered Gene through cable TV reruns because Game Show Network has been re rerunning Match Game for years and years and years now. And I discovered the show as a teenager when I first got Game Show Network, and I was completely mesmerized by the show. I got just a big kick out of Gene and a big kick out of the panelists. I, I love the questions. I love the interaction that the celebrities had with each other and with Gene. It was just an entertaining show, and when I first got Game Show Network, I was looking forward to the reruns of the more recent shows, the shows that I grew up with. Sure. And it just completely spellbound me, and I... It, always kind of amused me looking back that this teenage kid was more interested in the show that was popular and hit its stride before he was born. And so I had always just been an admirer of Gene because he entertained me and entertained me at a time beyond when these shows took place. So that fascination has always uh, carried over. And certainly I was a big admirer of Bill Cullen once I began discovering him through TV reruns too. Uh, and that's what kind of led me to write these books about these remarkable men that nobody else was writing books about. And by golly, they should have books written about them. But that was my fandom of match game as a teenager. And my continuing fandom of match game is what drove me to write the book. Well, it's interesting when I saw this, uh, I was just kind of looking around on Amazon for some different reading material in this uh, area, because I'm a little bit older than you Well, quite a bit of, I'm in my, my mid forties, but I love a lot of these, uh, classic broadcasters, whether it's a game show or whatever it may be. And for the longest time, I thought that Gene Rayburn had been underappreciated and we've had Dick DiBartolo as a guest on the program before. Uh, so we really have a, a real admiration for him. But the thing that I think that you did, and I think is fascinating is I knew that Gene Rayburn had hosted monitor, which was a great classic uh, radio series uh, that ran, I think up until the early seventies uh, on NBC. And he had been a big part of that. I knew that, yeah. but I did not know that if you look at broadcasting, he had a tremendous impact 
on three different areas of broadcasting, and maybe four if you count monitor. He had a huge impact on late night and the burgeoning of late night talk shows. And I never knew he was Steve Allen's announcer. Then he had a tremendous impact. Well, before that, he had a tremendous uh, impact in basically co-inventing morning drive radio when you had that transitional period where radio became from from kind of dramas and comedies long form to something you'd kind of dip in and dim out, dip out. And then, of course, uh, he did Monitor, which many people think is the precursor to NPR in terms of a style. And then you have game shows. He really did it all, didn't mm-hmm. he? Yeah, he really did, and uh, you kind of uh, nailed it there with all of the eras that of uh, broadcasting that he was involved in and what he did for each one. Um, the invention of Morning Drive Radio, I think, was the most interesting one just because that's that's one of the ones that still per- persists, that and The Tonight Show. Um, as you said, radio was just starting to switch over in the late 1940s. It was the uh, dramatic shows and the uh, comedy programs, the variety shows. Uh, and when it was clear the television was about to take over, they had to find something else to do. And Gene Rayburn and his partner on this radio show, Dee Finch, kind of set the template for what radio has become. They were on the air for four hours a day, uh, sometimes four and a half. There was no structure to their program. There was no real set format except that they played music, they told jokes, they interacted with each other, they read the news. They did a little bit of everything, but it was mostly music-driven and personality-driven. And that's a format that persists through morning radio uh, just everywhere in the country to this day. And uh, just the idea that it's somebody that we know and somebody that we know for a completely different reason, I think is just amazing. It's, it's like you said, it's kind of discovering something new about this figure that we already uh, thought we knew. But uh, um, he, he did all of these. And, uh, the, yeah. No, 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 no. Go ahead. And I, yeah, I was about to say, and uh, the Tonight Show format kind of persists. Uh, somehow the, the sidekick role has always been a part of uh, uh, that program and uh, part of late night television, whether it's the announcer or the band leader. There's always somebody there kind of tagging along for the fun, and Gene helped invent that job. So it's interesting to see how many templates he helped set. But when you think about his background in terms of where he came from, I don't think anybody could have predicted this is going to be one of the all-time great American broadcasters. He came from fairly humble beginnings, didn't he? Yeah, he had a pretty humble background. He grew up in a uh, small town called Christopher, Illinois. It's uh, near Chicago, or he was born there, Uh, and then grew up uh, in what I would— what I seem to gather was the inner city of Chicago, the inner city area of it. Uh, grew up, uh, like you said, a very humble beginning. His father, his father was an immigrant uh, who worked as a coal miner. Uh, mother was a housewife. His father died during the influenza pandemic when he was uh, when Gene was only about a year and a half old. Um, and Gene did not have the greatest childhood. He always referred to his mother in later years as Crazy Mary. She was a very dominating, very nasty woman. Uh, Gene lost a brother when he was only about five or six years old to uh, an incident with a car, and his mother blamed him for that. So just a very unhappy and very humble childhood, but performing turned out to be an outlet for him. He did a bunch of school plays, and he found that he just kind of came to life when he was performing for an audience. So he kept pursuing that and kept pursuing that and wound up moving to New York. And 
what's interesting was even after the move to New York, you still wouldn't really peg this guy as one of the great future broadcasters because that's not what interested Gene. What Gene was always trying to do through his entire life was become a star on Broadway. Uh, he was a lot more interested in becoming a song and dance man on the Great White Way. And those opportunities never came, but yet he just kept falling into opportunity after opportunity in broadcasting. Well, and that's the other thing that, uh, aside from you did such a great job with, aside from the, 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 the piece about him kind of co-inventing all these different areas of broadcasting, was kind of his frustration that even though, I mean, he was at the top of the heap in terms of the ratings and so forth in the heyday of the match game and people loved him, it, you got the sense that he was never happy with that, that it was always, oh, I should be on Broadway. I mean, I, I, at least reading the book, that's the sense that I got. Yeah, Gene really made the best of uh, what happened to him. He he learned to kind of live with the success that he had, and he really did genuinely love going to match game. He said that in one of his final interviews. He enjoyed it as much as people watched it. And being left with an opportunity to do his own thing and do it with celebrity guests who were friends and people that he genuinely did like, uh, and to have so many people enjoy it, and admittedly a larger audience than he would have gotten uh, doing a show in a theater in New York City, I think Gene learned to live with the fact that he was better known for the game show than he was for the work that he really wanted to do. But uh, that kind of yearning was always there. And in fact, even after the match game was done, Gene would do shows uh, during his time off. Gene would do shows in regional theater. Gene would travel to Philadelphia. He would travel to Dallas. He would travel to all points between and do two or three months of a play in a summer stock theater, what's known as summer stock. And uh, just kind of that was his outlet for what he really wanted to do. He couldn't do Broadway, but these other areas would always have him come in for two and a half to three months and just do some show there. Now, um, in terms of his game show hosting career, it's kind of something that he seems to have fallen into. I think after his radio stints, uh, in terms of, uh, his morning drive stint, uh, if I'm recalling, it's been a couple of weeks since I finished the book, but he had had his main radio stint in morning drive. Then he went off to uh-huh. another station on his own and that wasn't, uh, maybe as successful as he would have liked. And he ended up working on, on some game shows and, and I, it sounds like, as you said, that wasn't ever a um, a plan. It just kind of happened. Yeah. Uh, after uh, his uh, radio career sort of collapsed, not necessarily collapsed because this was before Monitor, and Monitor was certainly a success, but um, he struck out on his own. Uh, he and his partner went uh, separate ways uh, after a contract renegotiation, and his partner had a lot of success uh, staying uh, in radio with a different partner, and Gene went solo. And NBC tried to make him into a solo radio star, and Gene flopped as a solo performer. So NBC had him under an ironclad contract, and neither side kind of really wanted to waste it. So they came up with the idea of just looking for shows to plug Gene into, and Gene wound up doing game shows. He hosted a game show for kids uh, called um, The Sky's the Limit on the local NBC station. Uh, He hosted uh, a summer replacement series on NBC called Make the Connection, which was sort of a knockoff of I've Got a Secret. Uh, he was a panelist for an ABC game show because at the end, ABC was such a distant, distant third place at that time that they weren't really seen as competition to NBC. So NBC just let Gene wander over to, to uh, ABC at that time and be a panelist on this other network's uh, panel show. 
So Gene wound up being pretty good at game shows, everybody discovered, and he had kind of a different flavor than the customary MC at that time. Gene was certainly not a Bud Collier or Burke Parks, but his style just worked for game shows. So they kept plugging him in, plugging him in, and that sort of wound up being Gene's thing. It certainly wasn't anything that Gene ever intended or sought out, but his skill set just totally fit the job. And an interesting thing was I was amazed when you look at um, one of the the gods of game shows, Mark uh, uh, Mark Goodson, and sometimes he would get frustrated with Rayburn because he, that he would move around a lot. I mean, I, I think he liked a more traditional host would stand behind a podium, but standing behind a podium was not Gene Rayburn style, was it? Yeah, that was kind of a big thing, and that would be the big surprise to people who do watch Match Game and buy the book for Match Game anecdotes. Was Mark Goodson could not stand the way that Gene did that uh, did that show, and Gene hosted for year after year after year, and Mark Goodson kept renewing his contract year after year because, in spite of what Mark Goodson wanted, and in spite of what Gene Rayburn delivered, the show was a success, and arguably a success because of the way that Gene was hosting it. But Mark Goodson sort of saw the ideal game show host as somebody like Gary Moore or somebody like Bill Cullen or somebody like Bob Barker. Those three names were the people that Mark Goodson saw as definitive game show hosts. And he'd watch Match Game and he'd see Gene do things like read the questions in a silly voice or climb over the audience seats or drag the stage hands on stage and do uh, shtick with them. Uh, or he'd play with equipment that was broken and draw attention to the fact that the equipment was broken or he'd riff on a bad answer given by the contestants. And Mark Goodson would just look at that and just think, that's not what a game show has done. Well, it's really not, but it's certainly what Gene Rayburn does. And Gene made his style work, and it made it work for that show. The thing about the match game... Go ahead. But you were correct about the podium. Uh, going back to that point that you just made, uh, that was actually a uh, brilliant little set uh, design omission that they came up with. Was a match game in its original form in the 1960s. Gene did stand behind a podium, and then when they brought it back in the 70s, they just they didn't have a podium there, and Gene had to walk across the stage to go from his question machine to the area where the panel was sitting to get their answers. And that little omission just sort of broke the show wide open because it certainly kept Gene from feeling like he was restricted to one area. Gene could move all over the place. Uh, he could do whatever he wanted. He could just, he could act on whims. Um, he wasn't literally hooked up to anything. Sometimes by way of the microphone cord, you'd be hooked up to the podium, but Gene was so unconstricted that he was able to really explore the stage. And that gave a new sense of life to the show. And it really made it work. And, uh, and then you spoke to the evolution of the match game between the 60s version and the 70s version, the 70s version being the one I think most of the people listening to this will be familiar with, certainly the one that I grew up with. And uh, I found it interesting you mentioned in the show that some of the, the at its heyday, uh, the, 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 the daytime version, was when it was in, I believe, like a 3.30 slot, something like that. And uh, a lot of school kids loved it. And I thought I was the only one, but apparently that was a big audience. But what I was going to say, and we've had Dick DiBartolo on this program, and for, in fact, I love the match game so much, he was our first guest. Uh, but the difference in the show, how it changed from just kind of a straight game to a comical game with kind of these double entendre uh, answers, it was quite an evolution and a revolution. 
Yeah, the uh, story behind that was uh, when they first formulated the show, the creator of the program, Frank Wayne, who was a longtime staff of Goodson Tottenham, Frank Wayne was the creator of the stunts for Beat the Clock in the 1950s. And Frank Wayne came into the office one day and he handed everybody pens and paper and he said, okay, everybody write one fact about elephants. So everybody writes one fact about elephants and then he said, we're going to compare answers now. And they found that even though there were a lot of people in the room, uh, everybody had written one of two answers. They had either written, they have trunks or they are gray. And that's kind of where the idea of the match game came from, was the notion of writing an answer to a question and trying to write what you think the other people in the room have written. So the original match game in the 1960s was this game played by two teams. It was a celebrity and two contestants on each team. And the idea was you were trying to match your teammates. And the questions were originally very basic. They were very similar in nature if you... uh, watching other game shows, they were very similar to what would now be family feud questions. Name something that you put butter on. Uh, name, uh, name a yellow fruit. Uh, name an animal with three letters in its name. Uh, it was questions like that. So the show hums along for about three years. Uh, this was uh, The show premiered New Year's Eve 1962. Uh, in 1965, the show was canceled by NBC. Ratings had just kind of dipped off, and uh, it was doomed. But they had a couple of weeks left on the contract. And Dick DiBartolo, the show's question writer, went to Mark Goodson. And Dick DiBartolo, uh, by night, was a writer for Mad Magazine. And he said to Mark Goodson, well, what if we started writing Mad Magazine-like questions for the match game? And Mark Goodson asked, well, what do you mean by uh, uh, a Mad Magazine question? What's a Mad Magazine question? And Dick DiBartolo gave the example, well, instead of saying, name something you pour gravy on, Let's ask the question, Mary likes to pour butter on John to blank. <laughs> and it sounds funny, and it, it gets a laugh because it is funny. But once you've asked that question and it's time for people to write answers, they're going to write mashed potatoes or they're going to write turkey. They're, they're going to write just a regular answer like they would have written the last question. Basically, all Dick Bartolo did was he found a way to ask exactly the same questions they'd been asking, but a funny way to ask them. So they began doing that, and... Because we weren't in a thousand-channel universe yet, it was you had three choices for what you were watching on TV at any time. So people just kind of switched the dials over and noticed what was going on on the match game and began telling their friends, hey, you need to see what they're doing on the match game now. It's something different. By word of mouth, the show's ratings went up, even though it was canceled and only had a few weeks left. And NBC basically gave it a stay of execution. They kept it on the air. Uh, just because ratings went up that much in what was supposed to be the final few weeks. And so Match Game turned into a comedy show, which worked great for Gene because that was his forte. It kind of drove Mark Goodson nuts because Mark Goodson always saw it uh, in the vein of Password. He wanted to be something like Password with Alan Ludden, where it was a very understated, very low-key game, very refined, uh, and just very uh, a very dignified presentation of it. <laughs> so Mark Goodson wasn't totally happy, but at the same time, you know, he was certainly making money as long as the show stayed on the air, so he learned to live with it. Uh, and the show was just a smash as a comedy game. And I, I think that's the thing that made it work were the personalities. I mean, and you had such a great mix there. You had Gene Rayburn, and of course you had um, Charles Nelson Riley. You had Brett Summers. You had Richard Dawson uh, pre, well, pre and I guess some uh, a bit during the Family Feud. Um, you had just some great uh, standing panelists along with other people that they would mix in. 
Uh, and it just seemed like a big party. And I think that that kind of feeling that it was a big party is what I think resonated with people sometimes. And by reading your book, I understand sometimes it was a big party. <laughs> it really was. Uh, they did have an open bar backstage and they had catering. So everybody got dinner and drinks between the episodes because they taped uh, five or six episodes in a given day. And so the stars would just hang out with each other and talking to two of the people that were panelists on that show, Orson Bean, who's a wonderful man. Uh, and by my little side anecdote about writing the book was Orson Bean actually invited me into his home and made me a sandwich while I was interviewing him. Cool. <laughs> so I, for the rest of my life, I'll always remember that about Orson Bean. Uh, and uh, Dick Gautier also, you might remember as Jaime the Robot yes. from Get Smart. Uh, both of them had wonderful memories and what both of them basically recalled was you went in there and you just played this game that was, as Borson said, no more complicated than anything you would actually play at a party. Match game really was a party game. And then you went backstage, you had dinner and drinks with these six people that you really, really liked. Uh, you told stories, you swapped jokes, uh, you kidded around with each other. Uh, had a couple of drinks and then went back out, out, out on stage and did it again. And then at the end of the day, somebody cut you a check for $1,000 and you went home. Uh, it was just the best gig in the world. And it really was a giant party. And that atmosphere that was backstage, you know, they didn't keep it backstage. The great thing about Match Game was whatever was going on backstage, they carried forth onto the set. And you saw these people who had been in the middle of a party carrying on that party while they were on stage and playing this game. And it was just a wonderful way to present the show and a wonderful atmosphere. And I think that's what really drew people to it was the fact that these people were not just playing the game, but truly having just the time of their lives playing it with each other. And the thing is, is that I really think that the match game, I don't know that it could ever be replicated because, I mean, there's only one Gene Rayburn. There's some great hosts I could think of people who could make something like this work, like a Tom Bergeron or people like that. But I, I think that it's unique to its time because just the the mix of people uh, were so unique and so good. And then also, I think it was the um, zeitgeist of the times. If you look at the 70s, things were starting to loosen up. You had the sexual uh, revolution. Uh, you know, you had TV getting a little looser in terms of what you could allow, but there was still a definite barrier there. There was still definite censorship. So you had people like maybe Johnny Carson pushing the boundaries a little bit. Uh, at late night, Saturday Night Live pushing uh, the boundaries uh, a little bit more. Uh, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. And then you had in the daytime uh, and also the PM version, you had the match game pushing the boundaries. But the boundaries weren't there. So uh, the the guests were or the, the contestants were actually instructed not to say anything that would be considered uh, obscene, but to come up with euphemisms and such. And kind of that that um, th that wordplay i think that kind of made the, the the game i'll give you an example uh, give you an example present day or more recent howard stern i think howard stern was much more daring yeah. on traditional terrestrial radio because he couldn't say things he had to find ways around it and now on sirius he can you know drop an f-bomb yeah. anytime and by the way he's a fantastic uh broadcaster fantastic interviewer if you've really not listened to his interviews you're missing something but in terms of that and which in the match game they had a yeah. line they couldn't cross but they could have a lot of fun with it right and uh you kind of hit it on uh being a product of its time um talking to the staff of it particularly robert sherman who was the head question writer for the show um 
Robert Sherman always felt like the reason the match game worked was because it was the 1970s. And in future years, when they would discuss bringing the show back for another one, Robert Sherman was always one of the voices in the office who was against it. And that surprised people in the office a lot. But Robert Sherman always argued that this show was a success because it came along at the right time. We can't really do it again. Uh, he always felt that the the earliest coffin nail for the show, and it, the Match Game was on the air for nine years. It, uh, match Game, as you know it, uh, would be Celebrity Panel, uh, the more familiar version that everyone's seen. Uh, that began in 1973. It was on the air for in uh, 1982 uh, until 1982, so that's a nine-year run. But the first coffin nail was 1975 when Saturday Night Live premiered. And Saturday Night Live was the show that really kind of started to change the rules for what television could do. And after Saturday Night Live came along, very, very slowly but surely, you saw other boundaries being pushed on television. You saw envelopes being pushed. Um, and you could just see the world, the world outside of Match Game changing and changing and changing and becoming more blatant and becoming more explicit uh, to the point that by 1982 a double entendre just wasn't anything anymore. And that was the year that match game was canceled. And in future years, when they brought it back, there were a couple of things. First of all, they tried to steer clear of double entendres as much as possible on the uh, short lived match game, Hollywood squares hour. That was the first attempt to revive it in uh, 1983. And most of the questions are silly mental pictures, but not really sexual innuendo and not really double entendre. Uh, and then in the 90s, there were two efforts to revive it, one on ABC and one in syndication. And those didn't really work. Uh, and the, the one in syndication with uh, Michael Berger hosting, that was one where they just blatantly said the suggestive answer, the, the, the one that they were hinting at. Whereas the original match game would kind of dance around it. They would just go full out and say what everyone was thinking. And it sounds like a funny-duddy thing to say, but it really lost its charm when people were just outright saying it. Kind of the charm in, it, uh, in the 70s was that they were trying to avoid it. And it was kind of fun seeing everybody trying to come up with something other than the obvious answer to these questions. Now, uh, post, uh, well, post uh, match game, I want to get to that, but I want to mention something. I mean, I would have thought that Gene Rayburn, having been so successful in the match game, would have been enormously wealthy and would have been very, very well to do in his later years. I'd think of people, other game show people, also hosts who were smart to get in on the production side, like Peter Marshall, Merv Griffin, Dick Clark. Of course, Dick Clark is probably much better known for the American Bandstand. Yeah. But my point is, is that a lot of these guys um, also did things on the business side. Gene Rayburn didn't do much on the business side and uh, he may not have been as well to do as many people thought. Yeah. Gene Rayburn did not make the money that he should have from the match game. And he really didn't realize that until years later during the 1960s, Gene Rayburn uh, decided to hire a business manager and he figured the smart thing to do would be to hire Mark Goodson's business manager because his thinking was if he and Mark Goodson had the same business manager, Gene would get the sweetest deals out of contract uh, renegotiations. Well, it took him a couple of decades to realize that, no, if you have on one side of the table, Mark Goodson, the guy who generates the money, and on the other side, Gene Rayburn, who's getting paid the money, the business negotiations are always going to favor the guy who's generating the money. So the business manager was always looking out for Mark Goodson, not Gene. So Gene cost himself a lot of money and didn't really realize it until Family Feud became a success. 
Uh, Richard Dawson at that time in the early 1980s was getting $300,000 a year for Family Feud. And Gene kind of stepped back and looked at Family Feud ratings and looked at uh, what match game ratings had been in their prime and started wondering, well, where was my $300,000? Gene never made the money that he should have gotten for the match game. And uh, certainly because at that time, nobody anticipated that game show reruns would ever be a thing. There was nothing in Gene's contract that entitled him to royalties, so he didn't have that to count on. And so Gene really did not have a lot of cash on hand, and he tried to make it work by, as you mentioned, going outside and trying other uh, business ventures. Gene sunk a lot of money into a disco disco roller rink. Uh, Gene severely overestimated the staying power of disco, and that burned him in the long run. the other thing he did was he gave his money to uh, an investor, and it wound up being a Bernie Madoff-style scheme. So Gene lost a lot of little money he made and really did not have anything at the end of his life. He was living off his pension and his Social Security. He didn't have anything in the bank. Yeah, it's really sad when you hear that about people who have contributed so much to have to to have to struggle like that. That, that That's always disappointing to hear. Do you think, uh, in the end... Uh, the Gene Rayburn looked back and said, I did something neat. That that was a heck of a run. Do you, do you think that was his attitude about it all? Yeah. I, you know, he, he was, uh, he was disappointed by it. Certainly. I, it would be hard not to be disappointed by it, but um, ultimately, like I said, he kind of learned to make peace with the success he had. And he was grateful for the success that he had. And, if not a wealthy man in his final years, he was at least comfortable. Uh, his uh, after pension and social security were enough to get him by. And he, at the very least, he had an, a nice apartment in his final years. Well, I've got to say what a great show. And I see it on TV. In fact, uh, maybe about a few days before I even saw your book, I uh, was flipping through the channels. It was a, I think it was yeah. a weekend morning and the match game came on and immediately a smile went on my face and I put down the remote and went back to the seventies for a little bit. And, uh, Gene and everybody in that crew gave us that gift. Yeah. It, it's, it really is a wonderful show and it's aged very gracefully. One of my memories from college just 10 years ago, um, was a friend going home for Christmas and coming back and just describing this game show that he being enamored with called the match game. He had kind of stumbled upon the reruns and got hooked on it and spent the entire Christmas break watching the match game reruns on Game Show Network. So uh, he asked if I, if I knew anything about the show. Well, I, I was recording the show religiously. I loved the show so much that I was recording it because at that time, the, my quirky way of thinking was, I'd better record this stuff while I can because once I get out in the real world after I finish college, I might not be able to afford cable. So since I love game shows so much, I was always recording stuff off of Game Show Network just to kind of stash this war chest just in case I didn't have cable in the future. Um, but I had all these tapes and match games, so I loaned them to my friend. And that's something that I always remembered was a college student in 2004, 2005, just becoming completely enamored by this game show from the 1970s. And that speaks to what Gene did and uh, what the panelists did. Yeah, it's amazing. I will ask you one last question, and this one is about, and then we'll give you a chance to tell people where to find your your work and so forth. But in general, you've done a lot of work with game shows. You obviously have an encyclopedic knowledge of them. Why do we love game shows? 
Why do we love game shows? Uh, first of all, I, there's the vicarious nature of it. Everybody likes watching these shows and thinking about the trips being given away and the cars being given away and certainly the cash being given away. Everybody likes that. The other thing is, it's certainly the most interactive form of television, I think. You're definitely shouting at the screen if somebody calls out a, a, a J instead of an S on Wheel of Fortune. And you're screaming at the TV if you know Final Jeopardy and everybody is giving bad answers to Final Jeopardy. Um, it's good mental exercise. There's a bit of a challenge. Uh, a lot of people of, uh, who are not fans of game shows criticize it for you know, being a low challenge or not as mentally taxing as other activities. But there's certainly a, a, a mental challenge to a degree on game shows. So there is mental exercise there. So there's definitely appeal there. And it's the personalities, uh, not just the hosts, uh, who are these warm, friendly, likable personalities who put themselves uh, themselves in front of the camera, uh, but the contestants and the celebrities who play the game, and they put themselves out there. There's really no facade on a game show. You're seeing people's true personalities and their true nature come through, um, especially the, uh, the hosts and uh, the celebrity guests. Um, a director who worked on Password told me, this doesn't appear in uh, any of my books, uh, a quote from a future book that I'm working on right now, but I was talking to the director of Password, and he was talking about how, you know, when you take five game shows in a day, you can start off with a facade on Monday, but by Friday, you're seeing these people's true personalities because it's just kind of worn off as uh, the week's gone along. Right. And there's something so real and so natural and so organic about the way people behave on game shows. And it's, it's just very, very riveting to see the actual personalities come through. Now that's that's a fascinating point I'd never thought about. Well, uh, fascinating stuff. I must say, if you are a fan of the match game and specifically Gene Rayburn, you need to read this book. It was a lot of detail, but I love that. I love when you read a bio and it doesn't gloss over a lot. It gives you a really full picture. And when I finished this, I felt, and I don't feel this way about a lot of bios, I felt satisfied. I felt I know what I want to know about Gene Rayburn. He was such a talent. Adam, where can people find this book and get plugged into the rest of your work uh, on game shows and so forth? You can buy all of my books that I have out so far direct from the publisher, Bear Manor Media, at their website, bearmanormedia.com. Uh, it's available in uh, paperback and uh, in hardcover. Uh, you can also go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble, and uh, especially at Amazon, it's available for the Kindle if you have a Kindle. Very good. That's how I read it, and it was a delightful read. Adam Needup, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us on TV You Grew Up With. We'll be back soon with another episode. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. And as they say in classic TV, stay tuned. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.